0: Got time for a quick story. Imagine sitting down with Patrick Swayze and writing an iconic hit song. It's what Stacey Weidlitz did back in 1984. This was before Dirty Dancing was a thing. In fact, uh, this is a song that was originally submitted for another movie before it was submitted for Dirty Dancing. I'm talking about She's Like the Wind. They wrote that song. And this was after Stacey Whitelitz had already begun a career doing scoring, tv theme scoring, for example, like the theme song of the Richard Simmons show, to start, in addition to other scoring that came along, eventually movie scoring, all sorts of scoring. He's, he's written, arranged a whole lot of music. The one you're probably most familiar with is She's Like the Wind from Dirty Dancing. And I got the opportunity to talk to Stacey Whitelitz, and that's who we're talking to in this edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. And the stories about She's Like the Wind and, and other songs. So we'll start with She's Like the Wind, song that my radio station, Greatest Hits ninety eight point one, 8.1, well, we play that song. It was a big, big hit in the era from which we play our music on the radio. I'm curious to start... You've talked about writing the song about how Patrick Swayze had certain lines and you were you had some other lines in that. Could you break down the like how the whole song developed? Like kind of a deep dive into from that point of like the just the two chords and building up into arranging it, da da, 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 da eventually leading to the studio. I know there's the Oberheim story as well, but how all of that came to be from starting writing to we got a finished product here before you even knew it was gonna be a hit.
1: Yeah, basically it's it's like you said, he came over with his guitar. We lived around the block from each other in LA and had become friends. Um, and mind you, this is also two years before Dirty Dancing. Um, we were planning on submitting it to a different film called Grandview USA. So he came over with his guitar. Uh, he had been in bands in high school and on Broadway. So he had good musical background. And I was at the piano And he started playing, you know, C to E minor Uh, and um, the first two lines intrigued me, which was, she's like the wind through my tree. She rides the night next to me. This is actually even before we decided to call the song, she's like the wind. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was just the opening lines. Then the third and fourth lines he didn't like, or I didn't like rather, and uh, he got defensive and uh, he said, what would you say? And i said uh, she leads me through moonlight only to burn me with the sun and he said you know what what does that mean And i said i don't care let's just write it down and move on and and then it was you know i said to him i said well it's got to move off of those chords at some point i mean it's it's fine for the verse but um i took it to an um, a minor seven uh and uh then b minor seven and then we had came up, I think it was the second day, we, we came up with this kind of what you call a, a walk down in the chords um, mm-hmm. and realized that She's Like the Wind was the tagline and was the hook. And uh, uh, because he, we he had just a fool to believe, I have anything she needs, uh, She's Like the Wind. And um, so then we had this, this framework and the chord pattern um, and uh from there we decided to do a demo of it to submit to this other film and uh, i programmed all the synthesizer parts uh and and drum machine uh brought in a guitarist friend of mine uh to play on it uh and patrick did the lead vocal and my girlfriend at the time wendy fraser was a great singer who's on the final version as well and she did some background vocals and uh, then this kind of duet with him at the end and um, we submitted it to the film and ultimately they didn't use it which turned out to be a blessing Uh, and uh, the demo basically sat in a drawer for two years and uh, it was just really completely off my radar But then he called me all excited from North Carolina, where I knew he was shooting Dirty Dancing and said that he had played it for the producers and director and they wanted to use it in the film. And um, I needed to call a guy named Jimmy Einer, who is um, the executive producer of the record and a legend in the record business. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to Jimmy and he, you know, confirmed, yeah, we think the song's great. It's a great ballad. We want to use it uh then he asked who's the the girl on it and i said my girlfriend wendy and he asked if she was signed to a label i said no and he said okay great we'll use her on the final version then and uh but again it was you know it it was exciting to an extent but i the movie was supposed to be a little low budget movie which you know five million dollar movie And uh, as it was nearing completion, the word on the street about it was that it was going to be awful. Um, The production company didn't know what they were doing with theatrical releases because they had only been a video company to that point. And so the impression was it was going to get a theatrical release and then go straight to video after about a week. And that, of course, proved to not be the case. Mm Because it just exploded once it hit the screens and became this monster sleeper hit. So that that was based, and you know also the final version of the song was produced by Michael Lloyd, uh, who also produced Time My Life, and he basically followed the structure of the um, of the demo, uh, even some of the lines in it, and, um, but he added some crucial elements that I thought were were great, like the the girls chorus at the end repeating just a fool she's like to win just to drive home that that hook mm-hmm. um he added a bar, a bar of four for uh, a bar of five rather for some dramatic impact right after the sax solo and uh, it, it was he he did a great job with it and um and then you know when the album came out after the the movie it Moved to number one very quickly and time my life shot to number one. So it was, it was amazing.
0: Do you still have the demo that's on?
1: You know, I got asked that recently and I've (laughs) got to find it. I I think I have it on cassette someplace in the house and I, I've got to find that stupid cassette. Uh, I don't think I have the original um, tracks to the demo, Unfortunately, the studio that uh, we recorded it at, California Recording, got wrecked in a fire Mm. and their vault went up. So I think that I think that took our 24 track with it. So uh, um, so that's that's a shame, of course. But uh, but somewhere in the house, I've got it. and I've got to get a transfer.
0: Yeah, it reminds me because didn't you've obviously done some stuff with Frankie Prevett connected to Dirty Dancing and what the demos came out. From his two songs, didn't they come out about a decade ago or so? If it was for charity, and I remember he put out the demos for that. I was intrigued when the, that came out. Like, like I perk up at anything that's like the original original demo. Yeah. And hear the yeah. the genesis of a song that would be fascinating if you find that.
1: Yeah, it, w- it would be really interesting. Um, you know, on the on the final version actually that Michael produced, he had hired a um, a synth player named Stuart Levine uh, as part of the session players great great band L- Lawrence Juber was on guitar who's was mm-hmm. from Wings yeah and Paul Lime on drums who now lives here in Nashville mm-hmm. uh, so it was uh, the synth player was doing these synth parts and Jimmy Einer turned to me I was sitting in the booth and uh or the control room and Jimmy said it, it just doesn't sound right uh what did you use on the demo. And I said, my, you mentioned it before, my OBA, Oberheim 8, great synthesizer. And she said, where is it? And I said, it's 10 minutes away at my apartment. She said, go get it. So I ran up and down, you know, and, and brought it back to the studio and recreated everything that I did on the demo on the final version. So when you hear the song, that's me playing, um, the, uh, Oberheim, the synth parts. Also, there's a little line um, um, I'm sitting at my piano, so it's it's easier if I play it. Yeah, go uh, for to, it. it. Yeah, good. Uh-huh. So I'm also playing. Aha. The- uh-huh.
0: That's on uh, DX7, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. I actually have one of those at home. A, a, an original DX7 from like 1984. I came across it on eBay back in 2000. It's like my prized synthesizer that I that I have. Um, I was impressed that he had, that there was an Oberheim on that, because I know that era, everything was moving digital, 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 like, away from anything analog. And every so often, I'll hear about something like, oh, yeah, there was an old analog that was thrown, like, a, I think Richard Marks right here waiting was, like, all Oberheim. Like, I had no idea around that time, because I thought everything was digital, and just discovered this here about that song as well.
1: Yeah, and and also the intro to Jump uh, by uh, Van Halen, that great synth yes. that's That's an OBA. Yes, uh, had a very particular uh very rich sound uh that i i thought was fantastic
0: yeah how do you approach songwriting like what like do you lyrical musical what when you when you write a song or when you write a score maybe it's different between score writing songwriting however but what is your general approach to developing a song from literally from scratch
1: it's it's taken so many different approaches um In Nashville, I've I've collaborated a lot with other writers, so sometimes a writer comes over and has a great idea. Um, Like in one case, I uh, wrote a song with two guys from the Canadian band, Doc Walker. We wrote a song actually that I'm really proud of, and the video is great, called That Train. And they came over with a complete, what to me sounded like a chorus, uh, and with lyrics and everything. And uh, they played for me and I said, that's great. And they said, yeah, but what does it mean? And I, you know, I was listening to it and it's like the wheels keep turning round; the engine never shuts down or slows down. Um, and I knew that these tracks would lead to heartache, heartache and pain, but I still got on that train. So I said, well, to me, it's about addictive behavior. You know that you're about to do something bad and you've been doing it before, but you still get on that train. And uh, so then we sat down um, at in this very room right where i'm sitting right now and um i started playing chords for uh, a verse and we just started shooting ideas back and forth you know let's make it a story three different stories where it's a story about a guy that wakes up in a motel just after a really bad night second story was based on a woman that i knew who had been in abusive relationships and kept going back to abusive relationships, which I considered to be a form of addiction. And then the third verse was about the lead singer of Doc Walker being addicted to going out on the road. And, um, so there, that was a case. Other cases, um, I had a, a, what I thought was a good hook. One time I, I wrote a song called getting up gets harder all the time with a friend of mine, Kent Agee, and he came over, he's a tall, lanky guy, and he flopped down in his in my easy chair, and he just looked up at the ceiling. He said, I got nothing. <laughs> and so then I told him, you know, getting up gets harder all the time. And he said, We got something. <laughs> and so being, you know, we we then he it was very interesting. He turned to me and said, Do you have any Johnny Cash records? And I said, Yeah, of course. And we listened to this song that chris christopherson wrote called uh sunday morning coming down Mm -hmm. we'd listened to it about 10 times in a row and said you know that's that's the vibe and uh being very disciplined uh writers with strong work work ethics we then broke for lunch (laughs) and uh but when we came back we had been discussing it at lunch and it just like flowed that afternoon um and um actually a guy's about to record it put it on his record uh, and uh, so it, it really varies. And, and like when I co-wrote the song, uh, the end title song for Pocahontas 2, that was very, this, that was more like scoring almost, where it's you have a task that you need to fulfill for the movie itself that had to tell a story. And in that case, the song's called Between Two Worlds, I got that title from the post-production producer at disney whose name was bambi which i found hysterical <laughs> and uh, i asked bambi i said so what what is the song supposed to say she said well it's the end of the movie and john rolfe and pocahontas are getting married and they're sailing off into the sunset literally and he's british aristocracy she's native american and she said, it's like they built a bridge between two worlds. And so I said, well, there's the title of your song. And she said, what? And I said, between two worlds. We'll build a bridge of love between two worlds. Hmm. And so she paused for a second and said, okay, try that. And that's what they ended up using. We, we wrote the song based on that. So it's, it's many, it, it can come from many different places.
0: Okay. Of the songs you've written and of the scores you've written, which... Which is maybe the most, which ones still make you go, wow, I composed that? There's still like a, like almost a chill or a spark or whatever the feeling is when you hear that today, regardless of how well known any of them are. Which ones still do that for you today in 2021?
1: Well, she's like the wind, obviously, just because of the sheer wonder that I have every morning of having written something so long ago that's still on the air that your station plays which i'm very grateful for <laughs> and uh, uh it, the, that it had a worldwide reach also i've seen it show up in blogs in vietnam i mean it's it's amazing i heard it myself on a bus in havana uh so it's it's that's amazing and i have to say between two worlds also uh hits me because we did a really good job with it and i've met all these now 20-somethings that was like oh i loved that movie when i was a kid and i know that song from a scoring standpoint uh, there's a couple of tv movies that i did um, one in particular called a child's wish uh, for cbs uh that was with um john ritter and tess harper and laura klumsky And a cameo appearance at the end of the movie by then President Bill Clinton. And um, it was a really well done, powerful movie. Uh, There was also a a documentary I did for ABC World of Discovery on the plight of the black rhinoceros uh, called The Last Charge of the Rhino. And I was nominated for an Emmy for that. So. um, But I still I hear that I was like, you know what? I, I did a hell of a job on that on that piece. So there are other ones where I go like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, you know, or <laughs> I wish I had a little more time, because you're always under tremendous deadlines with scoring work. That's what makes it so difficult. Is there
0: one where where it's a it's like a well known piece uh or well known scoring where you go that, that way, kind of go the other direction of yes, everybody knows this song, everybody knows this work. But, but I really would, th- this just isn't quite right, but no one would notice. Obviously, you'd be the one. Is there any for which that applies?
1: You mean in terms of a scoring project?
0: Yeah, or? yeah, a scoring or a song or whatever where, where you hear it a certain way and go, man, I wish that would have been different, but like everyone goes, oh, I love this thing and go, you know, but I wish I would have done that chord a little bit differently. And you know, because you're the composer.
1: Yeah, you know, it's. It, I had a song recorded that I wrote here in Nashville, co-wrote. Um, and um, it was recorded by an artist named Buddy Jewel. And the, uh, the album went gold, which was great. You know, it was my first Nashville gold record. And um, the demo that we did of it was fantastic. It was joyful. It was, it was really like a, a bluegrass, white gospel song rocked up and um with great fiddle and mandolin and heavy guitars and drums and um the singer we used on it did a great job with the stacked harmonies and then when i heard buddy jewel's version at sony records i remember sitting with the um a and r person with my co-writer burton and we just sat there and our shoulders just slumped <laughs> because it was like oh god they missed the boat entirely, oh. and yeah. And when I when I went to the uh, party for the gold record presentation where I received mine, <laughs> uh, the the record was produced by Clint Black, the great mm-hmm. country singer and writer. And I introduced myself to him, and I said I co co wrote One Step at a Time, and he said, "Oh man, it just bugs the crap out of me." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "We never beat your demo." Hmm. And so he even knew, you know, that they—they they, there was just something that happened that took the life out of it. It took the that joyousness out of it. And it, it was unfortunate because it was the third single off the record mm. and it just didn't really, you know, go far enough as a single because it was just I think if they had released our version as a single, it would have done much better.
0: Mm. Um, you'd mentioned in some of the other interviews about the Richard Simmons show. And yeah. that the theme song. I was refreshing my memory on this because I remember hearing it years ago. I mean, I vaguely, vaguely remember seeing it on TV when when I was a young kid. But I I've heard the theme, and it was is that kind of neo. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the one that's kind of n- a little neo ish with the ooh, 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 ooh like that yeah. at the end? Okay. Um, yeah, you wrote that with Wendy Fraser, correct?
1: Is that her singing on that or, or is that the studio other musicians? No, that, that's her singing. Really? And yeah. Uh, cuz what we what happened was when we played the theme for the producers over the phone, um, it was just me at the piano and her and she sang doo, doo 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 and they liked it so much that they said, "Well, you know, what if you are the lead instrument on it?" And so really she was, there are no words, but she was the lead instrument doing the melody. Uh, and it it fit with the character of the show, became very identifiable. Uh, we we were still living in New York when we wrote that in Queens, but we flew to LA for the session. And I walked into that, there were six musicians, including a legendary monster drummer named James Gadston. Hmm. Gadsden, yeah, who was mm-hmm. uh, just a huge guy too and uh he's sitting there like this looking at us you know <laughs> we're in our 20s and uh we did one version of it which they used more at the uh end and all this and we also had to do what are called bumpers yeah which are the ins and outs from commercials you know mm-hmm. we're back you know right like that type of thing and um but we, we tried it different ways. And then Gansden said, Let, let's try this. And he launched into this disco version of it uh, with the band going along with him. Um, and it was great. It was just fantastic. So that became the uh, the version that they used for the theme of the show.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. That's absolutely fascinating to, to know yeah. that after all these years. Um, what's the you you mentioned playing obviously the keyboards on "She's Like the Wind" in, in addition to obviously writing it and having a part here or there on, on certain songs of Buddy Jewel. One, what do you what do you think is the best known piece of music that you play on that people don't know you were a part of, either the writing or maybe more appropriately even the playing on that piece? That yeah, yep, yeah, that's that's you playing in the background on on a little part here somewhere.
1: Yeah, uh, there are things here and there. Um... You know the original theme for beverly hills 90210 Mm -hmm. which you can only hear on the pilot episode because of a debacle that occurred with the graphics and and aaron spelling throwing out the whole opening including our theme um i'm playing if you listen to it i'm playing all the keyboard and synth parts the guitarist is my co-writer jeff skunk baxter who i'm still dear friends with and the sax player on it was edgar winter Mm and that was incredible. You know, I remember talking to Jeff and I, he said, yeah, I think we should have sax." And I said, yeah, okay. Who, who do you want to get? And he says, I'll call Edgar. And I said, Edgar, who? And he said, Edgar winter. And I said, you're kidding. <laughs> and so, you know, then there's Edgar winter at the session. And you know, it was that, that was a real thrill because I was a huge fan of both Edgar's and his brother, Johnny, still one of my favorite blues guitarists of all time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, who do you think is is among the better scorers today? Like up and coming scorers? Are you familiar with anyone who's who's you think's doing a good job in any TV streaming movies? What whatever? Who's impressing you either today or recent times?
1: In in recent times, I have to say my my favorite of the what I would call the younger composers, although he's not that young anymore, is definitely uh, Thomas Newman or Tom Newman. Uh, who did Shawshank Redemption and many many great movies. Um, I th- always find him imaginative, um, uh, compelling he he hits the uh, all the right dramatic notes uh, just perfectly. Um, there's a lot there's a lot of music that I've been hearing recently uh, like I heard I, I don't know who the composer is, but whoever scored. Um, Uh, Queen's Gambit did a fantastic job with that and then also one of my favorite scores recently and again I can't remember the composer is the guy who uh, wrote the score for Get Out uh, that Mm. uh, kind of comedy horror movie yeah it's if you really listen to that score it's it's absolutely fantastic it's both creepy and compelling I mean it's just really brilliantly done
0: Mhm sure set the tone for that movie that was, that was a yeah.
1: really good yeah.
0: one. So yeah,
1: what um,
0: how did you get involved with opera? With um, with an with be working uh, with the Nashville Opera.
1: Yeah, uh well my my first uh uh you know little uh, dance with opera was when I was in 5th grade and then 6th grade the uh elementary school put on the Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan in fifth grade and I played Puba. And then in sixth grade, I got one of the starring roles as the captain of the pinafore and the HMS pinafore. Mm-hmm. So, and I still remember every song. Nice. So, uh, but, you know, I always listen to opera. Um, and interestingly, there are a lot of parallels between scoring and opera mm-hmm. because you're developing light motifs. You're developing melodies that, repeat throughout the piece Mm -hmm. and you know you listen to a puccini opera and you hear those themes from the arias weaving in and out and they bring up an emotion and it's the same thing with scoring so i would listen to opera to see how how they're taking apart a melodic figure and reusing it or recycling it in a way Mm -hmm. um but then when i moved to nashville uh unexpectedly i got involved uh with national film festival i had written the music for a film that patrick swayze and his wife lisa did called um, one last dance it was loosely based on a theater piece that we did in the mid 80s in l.a and um uh after we i was asked to do a panel on film music and then i got a call from uh patrick saying hey uh since the movie is going to be in Nashville Film Festival, we figured we'd fly there uh, to, you know, be there for the festival. And, and can we stay with you? Which was, you know, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, uh, so I, I knew my house was going to be a zoo for four days. <laughs> and um, uh, after the, the festival um, and the, the board of directors or a couple of people on the board asked me to join their board. And i'd never served on a board of directors or arts or any type of board and i said yeah okay this will be interesting so by 2007 i was their board president because i made a bad mistake and i showed organizational skill <laughs> so um and i served for two years and then i started getting involved with i was asked to join other arts boards uh there's a great chamber music group in town called Alias Chamber Ensemble, mm-hmm. uh, Grammy-nominated Alias Chamber Ensemble. And I, I was their board president for four years. I got in, involved with a great organization here in town called Leadership Music and uh, went through that program and then was asked to join their board of directors and then served as their board president in 2017 to 18. So I was kind of on the radar in the arts world and getting to know everybody. And the CEO and artistic director of the Nashville Opera, John Holmes, started courting me to join their board. And uh, I said, well, I have to wait till I'm through with leadership music or or alias, I think it was. Yeah, this was 2015. And um, so finally, when I rolled off the alias board, I joined the board of the Nashville Opera unfortunately exhibited organizational skill again and by 2018 I was their board president so um and have developed a very close relationship with John and the staff and uh and right now I'm there's another part of the opera organization called the guild which is kind of the education and fundraising wing so I'm currently their board president okay so it's 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 been fun it's in you know, getting to know some of the artists that come into town, some of the singers and um, and and be more involved in something that's that's doing actually fantastic work. Um, even in this pandemic year, they've been very active online and um, uh, got a, a, a huge grant from the Mellon Foundation called the Southern Arts Resilience Grant, you know, because we stayed open mm-hmm. and uh, and stayed productive. So it's it it's been a a lot of fun being involved with them
0: nice last question for you uh what is inspiring you musically now
1: huh um it's been a little rough over the last year i'll have to say with the pandemic i spent some time redoing my studio downstairs and i go down there sometimes i'm like i'm just not getting it so i'm listening to a lot of music um And I've been very active with photography recently also, Mm -hmm. Uh, that that's turned into a, it started as kind of a hobby five and a half years ago, but it's, I now have gallery representation. I had a show and four of my pieces have sold. And I'm going to try to find a way to combine photography. I've been in talks with the gallery about this, about a second show, where as you wander from room to room, I've scored the experience. Mm So that's something that I'm I'm looking forward to to getting into it at some point.
0: Well, and if anyone watching this uh is hearing about the photography, I would strongly encourage them obviously check out your website, but then check out your Instagram feed as well because the photography is excellent. And I know you've talked about it in other interviews and yes, it is that good. So um probably spend a whole another 15 minutes on on that as well so yeah. um there's there's a lot going on there and it's good to see you still with a creative output stacy white uh thank you for writing she's like the wind and, and oh, sure. writing everything else and being a part of the fabric of pop music and musical culture thanks for everything you're doing and we'll look forward literally and figuratively to what you have coming up down the road
1: yeah thank you for uh for hosting this, it's it's been a blast. And yeah, they can go to stacywidelitz.com. It's very simple. Very simple. And, uh, and check it out. And you can hear some music, too. Some of the songs I talked about today.
0: That's good. Yeah, we'll definitely have to check that out. See if you can find that demo. I'll, I'm looking forward to that. If you ever find yeah. the cassette, I'm playing that as soon as as soon as soon it shows up online. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Stacey, and take care.
1: Sure. Thank you.
0: Staceywidelitz.com. Yeah, it, he has written so, so, so much. I would also encourage you listening now to listen to a lot of the other, other interviews he's been doing, because there there's a wealth of information that we didn't even get to. Um, a lot of interviews that he's been doing in the, sp- in the spring of 2021, around the time that I, I'm doing my interview, I'd encourage you to listen to all of them, because you're going to get a whole lot of stories, uh, in addition to uh, what you heard uh, in in this interview, Uh this podcast and got time for a quick story and as he said com. you can find him on again social media Instagram like I mentioned uh, there's a lot of great photography that you get from him uh, right now and, and uh, yeah there's a whole lot coming from him check it out stacy Whitelitz. again that's spelled s-t-a-c-y-w-i-d-e-l-i-t-z this has been the latest edition of got time for a quick story thanks as always to greatest Hits 98.1 radio in eau claire wisconsin for providing the facilities to do these interviews you can listen to and watch some of these interviews this one you can watch it was done by by zoom uh, at greatest hits 98.1.com uh, where it says features at the top of the page put your mouse over that Then it'll say interviews, click there, and you can watch this, watch others, and listen to others. Others done by my coworker John Murphy. He's done some cool interviews as well. Also have a lot of these interviews on our YouTube channel as well for Greatest Hits 98.1. You can also find this podcast, Got Time for a Quick Story, and a lot of the usual podcast platforms. Subscribe to it so you know when new episodes arrive, and also rate this preferably higher so word gets spread around. Got Time for a Quick Story. I'm Luke Anthony.